You are listening to a sermon from Sojourn Church Carlisle, a local church in the south end of Louisville, Kentucky. For more information about the life of our church, visit us at SojournCarlisle.com. Well, God be praised. Good morning. My name is James Fields, Surface Lead Pastor at Sojourn Carlisle. It's indeed a great honor and privilege to be with you this morning um, to share God's word with you. Um, first of all, I would like to say Happy Father's Day uh, to all of our fathers who are here. Um, this is a day of great celebration, but we also want to be sensitive to understand this may be a day of mourning and the fact that some men or some uh, people in our congregation may be experiencing the loss of a father. Um, uh, and maybe the first Father's Day without them. So we both celebrate and we rejoice with those who are rejoicing the goodness and the beauty of fatherhood, but we also want to be sensitive enough to mourn uh, with those who may be mourning today, um, longing for a voice or a touch that maybe no longer is here. Um, in addition to that, I also want to say happy Juneteenth. Um, we had a Juneteenth cookout yesterday, which was um, wonderfully ran. Uh, Miss Jordan Kavuma. Uh, led that event, did a great job. We had about 100 people uh, in attendance, and we were thankful to God uh, to be able to celebrate that event with our community. Thank you for all those who came out. This morning, we're going to continue in our new sermon series called Growing Pains. This is a series uh, of a testimony on how a young church grows and develops, and we'll witness how God graciously loved a young church to grow and develop through some of the most difficult circumstances, persecution, flogging, riots, biblical confusion, and even theological ignorance. Last week, we saw Paul's great love for the church of Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. And last week, we witnessed three factors that makes our gospel witness effective despite opposition. We talked about the impartation of the gospel, We talked about the integrity of the gospel, and last but not least, we talked the implications of the gospel. And our thesis, our theme last week was simply this, the gospel of Jesus Christ is worthy of our proclamation and our imitation. Today, we'll see Paul's great fatherly love for the church at Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 17 through chapter 3, verse 13. And here we'll witness three commitments that Paul made towards this church. Today we'll see Paul's commitment to see them, uh, chapter 2, verses 17 through 20. Paul's commitment to send for them, chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. And last but not least, Paul's commitment to supplicate for them. That word supplicate just simply means to pray, to pray for them. And we see that in uh, chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. And our theme and thesis for today is simply this, a father's joy. A father's joy is deeply connected to his children's commitment to God. A father's joy is deeply connected to his children's commitment to God. Would you pray with me? Father, we do thank you. You are our heavenly father, and we thank you, God, that you've given us this time and opportunity opportunity to preach and hear from your word. I ask that you, as always, would allow your word to go forward and and not to be void. I pray, Lord, that you would allow some mind to be transformed and some soul to be saved for the advancement of your kingdom. 
be with me, God, in my weakness, in my frailty, in my fears, in my insecurities. I pray that you would hide me behind your cross and cover me in your grace. May your word go forth and may uh, it do the work that it needs to do even right now. Comfort those who need to be comforted. God, encourage those who need to be encouraged. Correct those who need to be corrected according to your word and your will. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I remember it like it was yesterday. I was a new student in the third grade at Jesu Elementary in Detroit, Michigan. And I just learned in class how to uh, write, address, and even send a letter to someone. And I thought very hard about the person that I wanted to send my first letter to. Then it dawned on me, I could write a letter to my dad. You see, my parents divorced, divorced when I was around two years old. And while I lived with my mom and my grandmother, um, I actually hadn't seen my dad in a number of years. And I had no real connection with him besides the annual birthday presents that he would often and very regularly send me. So with the help of my grandmother, Mame, I got to work and I wrote this letter. And while I don't remember the specific details that I wrote to my dad, I do remember informing him about my new school and telling him the name of it, Jesu Elementary. Weeks, been, weeks went by, and I didn't receive a letter in return from my dad, and I waited and waited for what seemed like to me in my little mind to be months, but to no avail. A letter from my dad was never sent back to me. Have you ever been in a situation like this before? A situation where your expectations are abruptly astonished by the harsh realities of this world. Have you ever been in a situation where your hope is suddenly smashed by the present reality of disappointment and or despair? Have you ever been in a situation where your optimism is constantly crushed by the weight of discouragement and maybe even denial. You see, for me and my nine-year-old body at that time, I was depressed, I was disappointed, I was discouraged. In our text today, Paul finds himself in a similar situation. And the question that we want to ask ourselves is this, how will Paul respond to the, dis to the disappointment in his own life? Last week, Paul refers to the Thessalonians, Thessalonica church or the Thessalonian Christians as brothers and sisters in, in chapter 2, verse 1. The phrase brother and sisters come from the Greek word adelphoi, which is an inclusive term meaning men and women, and it literally means from the same womb. This Greek term is referenced at least 15 times throughout the book of 1 Thessalonians, and Paul's purpose is clear. Whenever he uses his word, brothers and sisters, he's emphasizing the importance of Christians being made new, being made into a spiritual family, and thereby having a relationship with one another that's based upon their common faith in Jesus. It's a good reminder for us that the church, after all, is a family, and God is our great father. You know, the, traditionally, the book of First Thessalonians has been known as 
uh, a friendship letter. But today, by God's grace, hopefully we'll be able to see this portion of Scripture as being a fatherly letter. And remember, our thesis is this, a father's joy. A father's joy is most clearly connected to his child's commitment to God. Look with me in verses 2, chapter 2, verses 17a, with me to witness the first commitment that Paul has, Paul's commitment to see them. In chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 17, part A, it says this, but as for us, again, brothers and sisters, after we were forced to leave you for a short time in person, not in heart. Love this because Paul boldly says, we were forced to leave you. In other translations, the word forced is not used. It's actually the word torn from you. We were torn apart from you. In the Greek original language, this phrase means to be orphaned or to be torn away. In other words, Paul felt like the Thessalonians had been orphaned by Paul's forced departure. I know we don't have a lot of images to help us to understand um, this aspect of being torn apart or to be torn asunder. But I did find something that may give it a little clarity for us. Recently in the war of Ukraine that is still ongoing and for us as Christians, we still need to be praying for the war that's happening there. We often found, especially at the beginning of the war, we found images like this. Where fathers were forced to stay and be a part of the army of going against Russia and mothers and children were put into trains and forced to go away for safety. This is the image. This is the image that we want to invoke as we think about what Paul is saying here. He's saying that you were torn away from us and we long to be with you, but we couldn't. So what is Paul's response to his abrupt departure from the Thessalonica church. Look with me in verse chapter 2, verse 17b through 20 for the answer. Paul says these words, We greatly desired and made every effort to return and see you face to face. So we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and time again. But Satan hindered us. For who is our hope or joy or crown of boasting in the presence of the Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. Notice the urgency of Paul. Paul was committed to seeing them once again. And he expresses this urgency in three particular ways. He says, we greatly desire to see you. We want it to come to you. And then he says, and Again, even I, Paul, time and again, tried to come to see you. You might be thinking to yourself, Pastor James, why is this important? Why are you making reference to this? Well, it's important because a father's joy is most deeply connected to his children's commitment to God. So what causes separation? And what was the means by which Paul was being forced away 
from his this beloved church. Look with me at verse 18 for the answer. Paul speaks very confidently and clearly here. He says these words, Satan hindered us. Satan hindered us. It's a good reminder for us that the term Satan is, is not a name, but it's actually a title. Satan means adversary. Or the one who is opposed to God, who's opposed to God's plan, and who's opposed to God's people. Namely, Satan is the one who opposes the word of God and the will of God at all times. Notice, though, how Satan is opposing Paul. Satan is opposing Paul by hindering him from doing God's will and thereby creating obstacles to prohibit the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a good reminder for us as a church that in order for Satan to hinder us, that must mean that we must be moving forward. It's a good reminder for us that the gospel should always be on the offensive should always be moving forward. It should always be progressing. It should always be advancing. I love what Jesus says in Matthew 18, 18, after he talks to Peter as being uh, the rock. Uh, he says, uh, on this rock, I will build my church. And it's not Peter that's the rock. It's actually the gospel of Jesus Christ that's the rock. He says, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades or hell will not overcome it. Notice what Jesus is presuming as he says these words. He says, on this rock, on this truth, my church will be built and the gates of hell will not be able to overcome it. Why won't they be able to overcome it? It's because the gospel is going through the gates of hell into the pits of darkness and proclaiming truth and proclaiming light to all those who need to hear. Church family, you're on the offensive. You're not on the defensive. If you are always trying, listen, there's many times we need to defend the gospel, but there's many more times that we need to be advancing the gospel. We need to be proclaiming the gospel. We need to be embodying the gospel. It's not just something that we defend. It's also something that we advance. Some of you may be wondering why are you doing so much this week, Pastor Fields? You do a basketball camp Tuesday through Thursday. Then you do a Juneteenth event on Saturday. And then two weeks later, you're doing a VBS. Well, because the gospel is meant to be advanced. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the, the proclamation of Jesus Christ. So many people have told me how tired I look this week. And I said, yeah, I am tired. <laughs> Pray for your pastor. But listen, the gospel needs to be advanced. I, I, yesterday at the Juneteenth cookout, I had to go to my brother Trevor and say, man, can you go talk to that guy? Because I'm extroverted out. Like, I just can't. I want to I wanna talk to him. I want to get to know his name. But, man, I just can't do it. Can, can you do it for me, man? I can't do it. Love what Dr. Duran L. Gray says and tweeted out yesterday. 
He says the historic Christian faith, which was once a small band of Galilean Jews, is now a global movement of three billion. It has survived all sorts of governments. So don't fret, precious ones. (laughs) How did the gospel go forth? It didn't go forth by us sitting on our pews and twiddling our thumbs. It didn't go forth by us coming in our holy huddles and not going out into the world. It didn't advance just because it wanted to advance. It advanced through the work of people. It advanced through conversations. It advanced through dinner tables. It advanced as you hugged and loved on people who were suffering. This is how the gospel advances. It advances through us, the church. So what does it mean that Satan hindered Paul from coming to visit the Thessalonians? Well, let's take, before I answer that question, let's be reminded of of, of this really quick, that, that we have three enemies, that stated enemy in the Bible that we always need to be aware of. We, we have, we always, at all times, we have three enemies who are always working against us. Number one, enemy number one is the world. The, the world, yes, they will accept us to a certain extent, but the world has never meant, apart from the, the precious blood of Jesus, have never meant to be a friend of ours. It is an enemy. Not an enemy to be destroyed, but an enemy that is to be worn over through the preaching and the proclamation and the embodiment of Jesus Christ. The second enemy is one that we all are familiar with. It is the flesh. It is what I want to do, when I want to do it, and how I want to do it. And you can't tell me otherwise. The flesh is an enemy of ours. And then lastly, it's the devil. We've seen these enemies being manifested in different places, even as we've gone through the book of 1 Thessalonians. We see the world or opposition from the state being manifested, being the world or the Roman government. We see that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2, when Paul writes these words, On the contrary, after we had previously suffered and were treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, We were emboldened by our God to speak the gospel of God to you in spite of great opposition. Not only do we receive opposition from the state or the world, we also receive opposition from society or the flesh, the Jewish culture. We see this in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 14. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, since you have also suffered the same things from people of your own country, just as they did from the Jews. So we receive opposition from the state or the world. We receive opposition from society or the flesh. Now we see opposition from Satan, the devil, here in 1 Thessalonians 2.18, where Paul says these words, so we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and time again, but Satan hindered us. So let's answer our question. What is, sat- what is satanic hindrance? And why was Satan hindering Paul? Well, satanic hindrance is like trying to swim upstream. One of my favorite shows that I got to watch during the pandemic was The Chosen. Has anybody seen that movie, The Chosen? 
And one of the things that I love about that movie is the intro where you see uh, this one fish, blue fish, uh, swimming upstream as all the other fishes are going in opposite direction. And slowly, one by one, as that fish swims upstream, one by one, the different fishes become blue and then join that fish going in the opposite direction. This is the perfect, in my mind, it's a good example of what satanic hindrance is, looks like. It is a time in your life when again and again you try to do something that you know was right and found it hard to move forward. Satanic, satanic hindrance can also be like maneuvering through an obstacle course. I know some of you guys do CrossFit and other things like that, but the best analogy I could think of was this. It's um, the American Ninja Warrior obstacle course, right? It is opposition that is usually marked by obstacles that are placed in one's path to impede one's progress to move forward. So why was it so difficult for Paul to visit Thessalonica? Well, I believe that the hindering of Satan had a very specific meaning. I don't think when Paul was sharing that Satan hindered me, he was just kind of throwing out a random thought. I think Paul was thinking about a very specific instance, and I want to show you that in the scriptures. Recall with me the situation in Acts 17. Acts 17, verses uh, 6 through 10. These words are recorded. It says, when they did not find them, that is the Jewish leaders who were looking for Paul, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have now come here too, and Jason has welcomed them. They are all acting contrary to Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Yes and amen. The crowd and city officials who heard these things were upset. Underline this or take notation of this. After taking a security bond from Jason and others, they released them. And as soon as it was night, the brothers and sisters sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. So listen, there are a lot of different understandings about what this means when Paul is talking about um, satanic hindrance. But let me give you Pastor James A.P. Fields' a thought on this. I believe that Paul was hindered by Jason's bond. That as, as Acts 17 says, they took a security bond from Jason and the others. Yes, that could have been monetary, but that also could have been a verbal commitment that Paul and Silas were no longer allowed to be in the city. And if they ever show up again, then Jason and his friends will suffer the consequences. Let me give you three reasons why I think that. Number one, Paul very rarely, if ever, attributed his hardships to the hindrance of Satan. He very rarely does this. So for Paul to do this here, it has to be something specific. It has to be something that he's thinking about even as he's writing the words on the pages as he is sending this message to the church at Thessalonica. Number two, upon paying the bond, Paul and Silas, Silas were immediately sent away. They didn't wait a day. They didn't wait a week. That night, they were rushed out in a hurry from the place that they were lodging. And then number three, Paul sent Timothy and not himself nor Silas to go back and check on their welfare. 
I believe that as we look at this hindrance, it's not just something that Paul is pulling from the atmosphere. Paul is thinking about the security bond. He's thinking about the commitment that Jason had made. He's thinking about the people that he loves and says, listen, if I show up, you're in trouble. And I can't do that to you because I love you and I care for you. Before we go away from this thing of satanic hindrance, let me just give you three pastoral things that you should know about satanic hindrance or satanic opposition. Let me just give you three things. Number one, it is permitted by God, but God's sovereignty supersedes any any of Satan's opposition. Amen. Remember Job 1 verses 9 through 10 and verse 12, Satan answered the Lord, about Job. Does Job fear God for nothing? Haven't you placed a hedge around him, his household, and everything he owns? Very well, the Lord told Satan. Everything he owns is in your power. Check this out. However, do not lay a hand on Job himself. So Satan left the Lord's presence, and you know what it went on from there. I know it's hard to understand, and I know it's hard to comprehend but it is permitted by God. But number two, if it is permitted by God, then that means God has a plan. God has a plan to use our suffering, our heartache, and our pain to get our attention and to invite us to become more and not less dependent upon him. If God is permitting it, the holy, righteous, good God, If he's allowing it, if he's permitting it, then that means that God has a plan. Romans 8 puts it this way, for we know that God causes all things, please say all things, all things to work together for good of those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. But number three really puts us back into our text. Number three So number one, it is permitted by God. And number two, if it's permitted by God, then God has a plan. But number three, Satan's opposition proves the value of us as Christian believers. You see, Satan only opposes what appears to be a direct threat to him and his kingdom. Why would he oppose us if we were no threat to him? We must be, have to be a threat to the kingdom of darkness through the blood of Christ and through our resurrected Savior, Jesus. So why was it so important for Paul to visit Thessalonica? Look with me at verses 19 through 20. For who is our hope or joy or crown of boasting in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? Underline this portion. Indeed, you are our glory and, and, and joy. Paul is saying here, in other words, what Paul is saying here is that I've invested my life in you and your growth into maturity, your growth into whole people is the most important thing to me in the entire world. Notice here that Paul considered the spiritual maturing of these believers in Thessalonica as his most important work. It wasn't just a work. For Paul, this was the most important important work. 
Love what the Life Application Study Bible says about this section. It says this. It says, the ultimate reward for Paul's ministry was not money, prestige, or fame, but new believers whose lives had been changed by God through the preaching of the gospel. This is why he longed to see them. This is why he longed to see them. It's a good reminder for us. And listen to me, I'm talking to our leaders now. I'm talking to those who are coordinating events and making sure that we got enough pencils and enough paper and enough volunteers each and every week. This is a good reminder for us that no matter what ministry God has given to you, your highest reward and greatest joy should be those who come to believe in Jesus Christ and are growing in him. Growing in him. Why is this important? Because a father's joy is most deeply connected to his children's commitment to God. So not only do we see, have a commitment, Paul had a commitment to see them, Paul also had a commitment to sin for them. Look with me in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. It says, therefore, when we could no longer stand it, we thought it was better to be left alone in Athens, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker, in the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encouraging you, encourage you concerning your faith. So that no one will be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. In fact, when we were with you, we told you in advance that we, are, we were going to experience affliction. And as you know, it happened. For this reason, when I can no longer stand it, I also sent him to find out about your faith, fearing that the tempter had tempted you and that our labor might be for nothing. Notice again that, that Paul couldn't return or didn't return to Thessalonica, so Paul sent Timothy as his representative. What was Paul's response to his inability to visit Thessalonica? Look with me in verses 1 and verse 5. Paul mentions twice in, this five, in these five verses, two, he says these things uh, twice, which lets us know it's important. He says, I could no longer stand it. It's a good reminder for us that this does not mean that Paul was anxious or fearful. Rather, it meant that he must now, uh, he must now do something. He must now take some type of action to find out what's going on in Thessalonica. I love this because there's nothing like someone showing up for you when it matters most. You know, I mentioned to you earlier about the letter to, I sent to my dad. And while I never received an actual letter from my dad, I actually, actually received something so much better in return. You see, one day while at my new school, Jezu, I was having a rough day. I was having a hard time making new friends. I didn't understand the math that was being assigned to me. And I was being made fun of as being the new kid in the classroom. And in my anguish, I heard uh, my name being called over the intercom asking me to come to my office. And immediately in my mind, I thought, man, what did I do now? <laughs> How could this day get any worse than it already is? But to my surprise, as I exit that classroom door, I was able to see my father.
And it was the first time that I saw him in a long time. And it was actually the last time that I saw him before he passed away. He came to visit me at my new school. And immediately my heart filled with unspeakable joy. I ran to him with all my strength. I ran into his arms and felt safe and secure from everything. And although he smelled like a bottle bottle of alcohol, and although all my classmates who followed me out into the hallway for a bathroom break laughed at me as I was making an absolute fool of myself running down the hall, I didn't care. It didn't matter to me. For I was safe and secure in my father's arms, hugging him, loving him. See, there's nothing like having someone show up for you when it matters most. It's nothing like having someone show up for you in your time of need. When Timothy showed up, what did he report back to Paul? What did he have to tell Paul? Look with me in verses 6 through 9. It says this, these words. But now Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news about your faith and love. He reported that you always have good memories of us and that you long to see us as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and affliction, we were encouraged about you through your faith. For now we live. If you stand firm in the Lord, how can we thank God for you in return for all the joy we experience before our God because of you? It's a good reminder for us that Paul's work had not been in vain. And listen to me, beloved, your work is not in vain. The work that God is calling you to do as a mom, as a dad, as a grandparent, as a stepdad, as a stepmom, as a teacher, as a lawyer, as a, as a VBS volunteer worker, your work is not in vain. You see three specific ways that we can say that with confidence. He says their faith was intact, their love was evidence to all, and their trust in God was secure. It reminds me of the beloved disciple John, who wrote these words in uh, the third book of John, chapter 1, verse 4. He says this, I have no greater joy than this, than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Why is this important? Why are we talking about this on this Father's Day? The answer is simple, because a father's joy is most deeply connected to his children's commitment to God. So what's the proof of their genuine faith in God? How do we, in, in the Lord, how do we know that they really were saved? Look with me in verses 7 through 9. Paul writes these words. He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and affliction, we were encouraged about you through your faith. For now we live, if you stand firm in the Lord, how can we thank God for you in return for all the joy we experience before our God because of you? Notice with me, Paul is encouraged by them because of their faith and not in spite of it. 
Paul makes it abundantly clear. For we, we now live. If you stand firm in the Lord. I love this because it reminds us that as we teach God's word and as uh, people, men, women, boys, and girls, as they hear and respond to the gospel, there is encouragement that we receive as we see them standing, as we see them persevering, as we see them living out the gospel that we once shared with them. To stand firm is similar is similar to an army that refuses to retreat even though it's being assaulted by its enemy. There's an iconic image that comes to my mind when I think about this. Anyone knows who, what movie this is? Saving Private Ryan. And there's a part in the movie where, towards the end, where they have battled and they're at the point of saving Ryan, but then they look back and they see all these tanks coming for the final battle. And they are taking a stand even though they're being assaulted by their enemy. Love how the Gospel Transformation Bible puts it. It says this way, it says, Their steadfastness in Christ is life-giving encouragement to Paul who finds joy over the fact that the Thessalonians are standing firm in the Lord, knowing that if they were not to stand fast amid persecution, there will be no evidence that they actually believe the gospel. You know, one of the joys as a pastor of coming back to Louisville is that often in the city I get to see men, young men and women who I discipled as a youth pastor at St. Paul at Shively Heights. And I, just the other day, I went to Walgreens and saw a young lady who was, we were discipling and mentoring in the Lord, and it was a joy to see her <laughs> and to experience a conversation with her and to hug her and to embrace her. But you know what an even greater joy is? To know that she's still walking with Jesus. <laughs> that she's still following the Lord. That she's still placing her faith in Christ. Remember we said it before last week that, listen, it doesn't matter if you place your faith in Jesus 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago, or maybe even last year. The question you have to ask yourself, are, are you believing today? Are you placing your faith in Jesus today? Is your hope found in him right now? Not last year, not five years ago, not 10 years ago, not 60 years ago, but today, what are you doing about how are you responding to the bloody cross and the empty tomb? In the same breath, I also have some students who I mentored who are not walking with the Lord. Who I'm still trying to reach out to. I'm still praying for. I'm still loving. But their standing in the faith is so deeply connected to the investment that my wife and I put into them 10, 15 years ago. Brothers and sisters, I want you to hear me that your walk matters. More importantly, I want you to hear me how you walk with the Lord matters. I just texted my grandfather today thanking him for saying Father's Day, and he wrote back to me a, a really sweet text. He just said, you know, I love you, grandson, but, man, you're one of my heroes. 
He says, man, you're still walking with Jesus. You're pastoring a church. I knew you had it in you. It's a joy to see it come become manifest. Man, what a privilege it is to know that my faith, and listen, my faith is not perfect. Talk to my family or those who are closest to me. Talk to Pastor Nick. You Listen, my faith is not perfect. But I thank God that it can be an encouragement to someone. As he invested the gospel in me so I can live it out and also invest the gospel to others. Again, why is this important? It's because a father's joy is deeply affected, is deeply connected by his children's commitment to God. So we've seen that Paul's commitment to see them. We've seen Paul's commitment to send for them. Last but not least, we see Paul's commitment to supplicate for them, or another word for supplicate is to pray for them. You see that in verses 10 through 13 of chapter 3. He says, as we pray very earnestly night and day to see you face to face and to complete what is lacking your faith, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you, and may the Lord cause you to increase and overflow with love for one another and with everyone, just as we do for you. May he make your hearts blameless in holiness before God our Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Amen. Notice here how Paul prays for this church. He prays in two specific ways. Number one, he prays earnestly. To to pray earnestly means that Paul actually takes the time to think about what he wants to pray before he prays it. (laughs) He, He doesn't just throw out arbitrary prayers for these people. In other words, he considers what they're going through. He takes the time to think deeply on their needs. And he confidently sets the problem before God. This is what it means to pray earnestly. I don't have the best analogy to give you, but I'll give you what I have. In my mind, in estimation, praying earnestly is similar to dropping something in the mailbox. You see, I don't know about you, but when I drop something in the mailbox, I don't think about it. To me, it's, 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 it's almost as good as delivered. Listen, it's, I know it's still sitting in that mailbox, but because it's in the right place and it's in the right location, I know eventually my mail will be delivered because it's in the right place, and I don't have to continue to worry about it once I put it in that box. This is similar. It's a similar idea of what it means to pray earnestly. It's it's to take your problems to the right solution. You know, a lot of us are stressing and worried about so much because we don't take our problems to the right solution. We don't put our problems where they can be solved and where they can be rectified. We don't put our problems into the hands of our mighty God. And therefore, we worry. Not only do they pray earnestly, but they also prayed frequently. To pray frequently is best described in regards to the frequency of Paul's praying. He says that he prayed day and night, which essentially means every morning and every evening. In other words, as often as Paul thought about the believers in Thessalonica, which was often, he then took the time to pray for them. So using our similar analogy of dropping something in the mailbox, it's not just using the mailbox system once and never using it again. 
is using it, knowing that it works, and continually going back to the mailbox day in and day out, trusting and depending, looking and hoping, learning to depend on the resource that God provides, which is called prayer. Church family, this is our, my prayer for us, is that we would learn how to pray earnestly, that we would learn how to put our prayers in the right position and place before Almighty God and King where we don't have to worry about it. And listen to me, don't let someone tell you different. Worrying is sin. I know we don't like to hear that, but it is. It's sin because we want to take control of that which God has not called us to take control of. It's like me thinking every single day, dropping something off in the mailbox before church, and all day, all along, thinking, oh, man, I hope that they're going to deliver it. I hope they're going to deliver it. I hope they're going to deliver it. Well, when will they deliver it? I hope they will deliver it. If, if you saw me doing that, you'll look at me and say, Pastor James, what's wrong? What's wrong with you? It's in the right place. It's, it's in the right position. It's in the right location. Trust the process. We say it often, right? God's process is worth our patience. Beloved, I don't know what you're going through right now. I don't know what situation you're facing, but I want you to hear this word. That God's process is worth your patience. You don't have to walk with God in anxiety all the time. You don't have to walk with God in in fear and insecurity all the time. You don't have to walk with God wondering if he's going to work it out all the time. He will work it out because he, is, he has worked it out time and time again. Don't forget God's resume. God has a resume of delivering you from many things, many things that I don't, I don't even know about. Not only pray earnestly, but also pray frequently. Learn to depend on the power and the resource that God has given us called prayer. Listen to me, prayer works because God has created it to work. He's given it to work. Lastly, as we conclude our time together, notice what Paul prays specifically for the church. Paul makes five specific prayer requests for this church. He says this, he says, first, he prays that he might see them face to face. Secondly, he prays to fill up what is lacking in their faith. Thirdly, he prays to overcome Satan hindrance. He prays that the Lord Jesus would direct our way back to you. Fourthly, he prays that their love might increase. And fifthly, he prays that they might continue to live righteous lives until the Lord's return. We're going to continue with that last part next week of what that looks like to live righteously until the Lord's return. So I'm going to put a pencil there, but I really want to go back and look at that fourth mark. He prays that their love might increase. Soldier and Carlisle, listen to me. There are many ways that we can try to identify ourselves and the markers of success for our church, how we deem how successful we are. We could talk about the numbers. We could talk about budget. We could talk about evangelistic, evangelistic opportunities like Juneteenth or VBS. But listen, this is the one marker that matters the most. Above it all, this is the one, matter, this is the one marker that matters the most, that our love might increase for God and for one another. 
It's not about the things we do. It's about who we are. We say it time and time again, identity precedes function. And there's a lot of churches who do a lot of functional things without understanding their identity of who they are in Christ. They do a lot of things out of effort and out of money and out of will, but they don't do it out of love. At any point that I feel that we're not doing things out of love, as a church, we will, we will scale down. We will. Because I want our service and I want our love, I want the things that we do to be a place from an overflow from God's love to us, accepting, knowing, accepting the love that God has for us. And as we serve, it's a natural overflow. Think of a cup that I set here and put water in, and I fill the cup up to the point where water is literally gushing out from it. This is what we envision, and this is what we will discern as being successful. As we enter VBS as a church, may we do it from a place of love. May we do it from a place of humility. And may we do it from a place of dependency upon God who can only bring spiritual life out of dead situations. Would you pray with me? Father, we do love you and thank you and praise you. And you are a good God and king. We thank you that a father's joy is most clearly connected, most deeply connected to his children's commitment to God. May you help us to see, understand, and embrace this reality today. I praise you, God, that you have not just called us to preach a good word. You called us to live it. You called us to submit to the gospel. May we learn to submit to the gospel each and every day of our lives. We thank you for this meal that we are about to take that proclaims our submission to the reality of the gospel even now. We ask that, Lord, you would, again, transform minds and you would save souls for the advancement of your kingdom. Both those here under the sound of my voice and even those virtually who are looking and who we may not even know right now. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor of Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a multi-ethnic church that is firmly rooted in the diverse community of South Louisville. We are seeking to equip our members for gospel engagement and practical, effective ministry to the poor, the marginalized, and disenfranchised here in the South End of Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit our website or email us at info at God bless.